Good morning. Have you ever gone past a graveyard and noticed a house sitting right next to it? And you think, what's it like to live where a cemetery is, is your yard? Uh, most of us would think that would be kind of a morbid way to live. And yet I think the preacher who is the author of Ecclesiastes, that's what he calls himself, uh, the preacher would probably say, that's a good place to live. Because the preacher keeps bringing up death a lot in this book. And after a while of, of him bringing up death and it's coming in chapter after chapter, we could think, well, can't he just move on and get to another topic? And yet he won't for the simple reason that death is not going to move on. Death is actually moving to us. And the preacher wants to serve our souls well. He wants us to live as if death is real. As if eternity is real. And so I would ask you, you know death and eternity are real. But do you actually live in any specific ways that show that you believe these really are the great realities ahead of us? As we see in the passage, uh, the preacher wants us to see that death is our common as well as coming experience. Regardless of how we live, our, our life will end in death. Uh, Tommy Nelson, a, a Bible commentator, wrote, In a game of chess, different pieces occupy squares all over the board. Pawns, bishops, rooks, knights, queens, and kings have different abilities and positions of power. But at the end of the game... Where do all of the pieces end up? In a box. However we live in this world, we can think that our lives are very different from one another, and yet, without exception, we will all end up in the same chess box. We end up in death. In verse 2, the preacher gives six contrasting ways of life. And then in the end, he, he says the same event happens to all of them. And at the end of verse 3, we see that this same event is death. He says whether you're righteous or wicked, whether you're good or bad, uh, clean or unclean, meaning that ceremonially before your God, uh, how is your heart? Uh, to the one who sacrifices, the one who doesn't, meaning those who are involved in the worship of God and those who aren't. The good one, the sinner. The one who swears and the one who shuns a no. There he's speaking of the person who has integrity or not. So whether or not they're willing to commit themselves to an oath or whether they, they know they have no integrity for that. The same thing happens to all of them. Now notice all of those contrasts 
were about morality and religion. Uh, here he doesn't emphasize that whether you're poor or rich, educated or uneducated, you all end in death. Uh, he makes that point in other places here. He talks about whether or not you're a religious person, whether you're active in the worship of God, whether you're an evil or a righteous person. You still end up in the same chess box. Now, many people would agree with the preacher in that. That's right. We all end up in death. So what does it really matter if I worship God or not? Why should I take away from what I want to do to get up early and go to church on a Sunday morning? Why should I bow before the ways of God when we all end up in death? And so much of the world would agree with that contrast. And so they, they agree with the preacher in verse 4 that it's the living who have hope. The problem is uh, they agree with the preacher's sentiment for the wrong reasons. Most people think that, yes, there is hope in being alive because as long as you're living, you can do whatever you want. And so the hope for most people in living is, I still get to do what I want to do. But that's not why the preacher makes his, his point here that there's hope in living. He says the hope in living is so you can prepare for death. Verse 5. The living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. So what is the hope that the living have? It's what they know. To live and know that death is real means you can live preparing for what is coming. And that, he says, is where hope is found while we live. If we are using the time we have to prepare for what cannot be stopped, that death is before us. For the world that thinks that hope is in doing whatever we want, the problem with that, he points out in verse 6, is when we keep living for what we want now, we're just gathering more and more of what will all be lost. Verse 6, their love, their hate, their envy, they've all perished. All that we get worked up about, and we can get worked up about things. We can get excited for things. We can get angry about things. So whether you're young and you're starting to think about career and that's opening up and you're excited for your career path, whether you're working on your dream home and making life as comfortable as you can, whether you're dreaming, envying those who have reputation and are well-known, recognized, and that's where you want to be. Or maybe life for you is about an injustice being done in the world or to yourself that what you get worked up about is how people have hurt and offended you. There are a lot of people in the world that their, their main reason and focus of life is what has been done against them. 
And the preacher says, there are all sorts of things that you can get worked up about. Love, hate, envy. And he says, what happens to all of it? It perishes. Everything you're worked up about, wanting to get, everything you're angry about, everything that offends you or you feel is important in this world, it all ceases. Think about the proverb that the preacher uses in verse 4 when he is speaking about the living have hope. And he says because a, a living dog is better than a dead lion. Now we need to understand what that imagery meant at the time that he wrote this. A lion is powerful and majestic. A lion in the ancient Near East, where this was written, often was the symbol for royalty. A dog was not viewed the same that we do in the sense of a beloved pet. One of our neighbors recently went to Disney, and the wife was not only talking about what they were where they were staying when Debbie asked, she started talking about where their pet was staying, their dog was going to an official Disney resort. And she was describing where the dog was staying. And there are all these upgrades you can make to, so your dog's stay at Disney is more enjoyable. You can pay for extra time, better food. You can have someone come and read stories to your dog. And many other sorts of wonderful things which I'm sure their dog greatly enjoyed and appreciated. That's not the picture that the preacher has in mind. The dog here is not the beloved pet. Uh, think if you have ever been in a third world country, if you've been on one of the mission trips to Guatemala, uh, Mangy, scrawny dogs are everywhere running alongside the road. You see them wherever you go. And, and that idea of these mangy, scrawny bees that are just trying to get whatever they can, seeming to live on the edge, uh, that's the picture he has. And he says, that lowly dog alive is better off than a dead, majestic lion. Why is the dog better off? The dog can live. The dog has hope. Because all of the beautiful, wealthy, powerful, and envied lions in the world all end up in a place that's not very enviable. All of the lions end up dead in the grave. And so the, the beautiful in our world, they wither. The, the athletes get cut from their teams. The famous are forgotten for the latest person who wants to be well known and push them out of the way. And the rich come to a point where they can't buy one more day of life. And so he wants us to think about 
what is valuable, and it's, it's not what we see at first in the world. Everyone wants to be the lion. No one wants to be a dog. But if the dog's living, he's got the advantage. So the point is, if you are living, you have hope. But don't, don't miss the importance of that hope. That hope is in knowing death is coming. And if that's not your hope, you're just going to end up where the line was. You're going to end up in the chess box. When we live in preparation for death, then we can live wisely. And as he shows us, we can live well. When we live in preparation for death, that's wise because death is coming. You can mentally or emotionally try to push death out of the way, but you actually can't push it out of the way. It's impossible to push something out of the way when every day it's closer to you. You're ignoring the, the elephant in the room that death today is closer than death tomorrow. And when you get home for lunch, no, it's closer than it is right now. So death is coming. It cannot be brushed aside. And so death really is a greater reality than your life now because death lasts longer. Death has no end because death introduces us to eternity. Death is coming. Death is the greater reality because it, it lasts longer, but there is a, a more pressing reason to prepare for death. And we could miss it in this chapter because it, it, it comes right at the beginning in verse 1. He says, I've laid my heart, I've examined this, and this I know. All things are in the hands of God. All deeds are in the hands of God. Death is a pressing reality because death is what brings us before the presence of God. Now, in one sense, we're always in the presence of God and we should live in that way before the face of God, God who is always here. Uh, but death brings us to the presence of God in, in a very specific way. It brings us before God in his role as judge. It brings us before God in terms of accountability for our life. All deeds, the preacher says, are in God's hands. All deeds, no matter who the person is, whether it's it's evil or good deeds. All of it is in God's hands. That means God is the main character of our life. We're living thinking we're the main character, and yet God is actually the main character even in our life. We may not be thinking of him, but every deed, every event, every moment takes place within God's hands. He is ruling over it. He is 
holding it. He stands at the end of it. It's all coming to him. That makes God the main character of our life. And so instead of measuring everything by our own sensibilities, how we want to value things, to be wise is to measure life by the sensibilities of God because God is the one before whom we will stand. Every, everything is, is headed toward that moment when we are before God who is judge of everything, every person, every event. God is the one to whom we are accountable. And, and that's the conclusion, not only to this passage, it's, it's the conclusion to the entire book. The, the end of Ecclesiastes is this way, chapter 12, verse 13 and 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Preacher says, I've told you all I have to say. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, because God will bring every deed into judgment. So when he says in verse 1 of our chapter, all deeds are in God's hands, well, what does that mean? Here he says, every deed is under God's judgment. Every secret thing, whether good or evil. So the preacher keeps bringing up death to us. He, he doesn't let the issue go. Because his motivation is he wants to serve our soul. He, he wants to protect us. He wants to help us. And he keeps bringing up our death to us because of what is true of us. For back in the, the first couple of verses of the chapter, when he, he gives those six contrasting ways that people can live, and then he tells us in verse 3, and all the hearts of the children of men are full of evil. So people can live in all sorts of ways, and we can call them good or bad, righteous or evil, but he says, really, in the end, everyone's heart is evil. The reason is because everyone on the face of this earth, at some point in their life, they are in the midst of cosmic rebellion against God. It's not just rebelling against something God has said. We are in cosmic rebellion. God who is the eternal being, who in the midst of nothingness but himself spoke. The world came into existence. He designed us out of his heart and mind and made us to be. He gave us himself. He gave us this world. He gave us his rule. And we have pushed God away. We have claimed Godship for ourselves. We have sought to be what we want, live as we want. And that is cosmic rebellion. And we can say this person is better than the other and he's good and bad and he's a great neighbor and he's a lousy neighbor, but before God we are all 
rebellious people. Because we're all sinners. And God is extraordinarily, perfectly, absolutely perfect, righteous, holy. And we've, we've just pushed that aside. And we've just claimed for ourselves, we're going to rule. And God, you're just going to have to respond to that. So God will. In his perfections. It's, it's not the meanness or the harshness of God that brings judgment. It is, it's the beauty and the glorious perfections of God that must respond to sin by holding it accountable, by bringing what it deserves. The Bible describes that as the judgment of God, as the wrath of God, as the vengeance of God. But God will hold accountable all deeds, every sin. So how do we wisely prepare for death that is coming? It brings us before God, and the hearts of everyone in this world has evil in it. It doesn't mean we're all completely given over to evil. There are people who are more evil, we would say, than others, but we all have evil in our hearts. And so how do we have hope in being alive and preparing for death? The hope comes, the wisdom comes, not by guessing our way through this. Oh, what do, what do I think God would want? You know, what do you think God would want? It's not by our guessing or asking each other. It's by going to God and finding out, well, what has he said? What has God said is his view. And what has God said is the answer. Wisdom is preparing for what is coming, what is in God's hands, by finding out very simply what has God himself said. Romans 6, 23. God says the wages, the payment, what sin deserves is death. Death of our body and death of the, the wrath of God against us. However, the free gift of God, he goes on to say, is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So what has God said about death that we should know? What is, God has said that death is because of sin and there, there's an accountability that will take place, and I, I cannot change that. I, I cannot back away from that. I, I cannot brush it aside because I am perfect, holy, just God. I, I must be who I am. And who I am is not only perfectly just, the heart of God is filled with grace unimaginable. And so to, to us who are filled with grace, Cosmic rebellion, the perfect God 
makes a gift for us. He gives us his son. The eternal son of God enters humanity, becomes a man for one specific purpose that in his humanity he could go to the cross and die and take humanity's guilt upon himself. And so Christ came, God became man. And he died on the cross, and we know he completely paid for the sin he died for because the one who died for sin came out of the grave. There was no more hold on him. The debt was paid. His resurrection shows what he has accomplished. And the Bible says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, quote, end quote. So what does God say about death? He tells us why it's there, what is following it, and he has a real hope for us. Not what we can do. It's will we trust in Christ who has done it all. He has come. He has died. He has been raised. He has ascended. He does reign in glory. All of this has been done. It's been finished. There's nothing that we have to do. There's no goodness we add. There's no ceremony we go through. We come to Christ who has done it all and we say, would you save me? Because I need you to save me. Would you forgive me? I know you have forgiveness. You died for sin. Would you forgive me? I know you have life because you came out of the grave. Would, would you give me life? Can I have life with you? And his answer will always be yes. Fully and forever. Do you live prepared for death? Do you give any thought to it? It's not pleasant thinking. At least not at first. Because to us, death is the end of things. But when we're prepared for death, then we start to learn that death, death is only the end of all things evil, and all things harmful, and all things sorrowful, and all things painful. Death is the end of what is not in harmony with the person of God. And eternity for those who trust him is filled with everything else, all of the goodness and grace of God. Are you willing to think about death that's coming, to prepare for it so that you can live in hope. When we're prepared for death, the preacher says, then we can truly rest, rest in the rest of life to come. We can take joy in life to come, even though the world is a messy place and has lots of sorrows that it throws at us. Underneath it all, 
there can be rest of soul even in this brutal world when we're prepared for death. And so that's where he takes us in verses 7 to 10. He, he brings a kind of a, a conclusion to those who have hope in death, those who are living in preparation. He says, verse 7, so go. Go through life, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart. Why? Because God has already approved what you have done. He is speaking here to those whose heart and life is right with God, those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are aware, as he says at the end, that we are accountable to him, those who are aware, as he says in verse 1, that we are in the hand of God, those who see clearly by the grace of God. He says we can eat our bread with joy and drink our wine with a merry heart life, can have rich goodness in it. And then he gives us three different ways that that can be. It's his advice on how those who are prepared for death live well in life. The first is to celebrate grace in verse 8. David Gibson, a Bible scholar, says that Ecclesiastes teaches us that life is gift, not gain. A couple times in the early chapters of the book, he, he brings up what do you gain by all that you're searching after? The point is, life is not gain what we're grabbing. Uh, people live that way, but life actually is gift. Life is God being gracious to us. Life is God gave you life. It's that God gave this world, that God gave you the capacity to live in it, enjoy it. And when we mess it up, God gives life eternal. Life is meant to be seen as gift, not as gain. It's, it's our orientation of how we see where things come from. And what does it mean to step in enjoying life? It's not trying to gain it all. It's enjoying the gifts God has given. And so he says in verse 8, Let your garments be always white, and let oil not be lacking on your head. Culturally then, a, a white garment would be what you would wear for a festive occasion. And you would also anoint your head with oil. That was part of the process of getting yourself ready for a, a festive event. But we also know that throughout Scripture, white symbolizes righteousness. And that oil on the head is used to symbolize the Holy Spirit. And so together, he's giving us this picture in earthly terms and in what we see spiritual terms that we are, we are invited to celebrate the grace of God to us. For you are in white garments and the Holy Spirit is upon you. So dress yourself in, in what God has done. Celebrate the graces of your salvation. You live in hope, preparing for death. And so you can live celebrating the graces of God. That You can live now celebrating 
that every pain and every hardship and every disappointment and every scar will be removed completely. Every regret, every failure just will be washed like the ocean at the beach every morning. It looks like no one was there the day before. We celebrate God's grace because it makes not things better. It makes all things perfectly good. We celebrate knowing that in Christ you are a joy to God. Have you ever been willing to really embrace that as a believer you, you are a joy to God, that He delights in you? You know, we talk about, oh, yes, God loves me, but then we're not willing to truly accept that God's heart rejoices over us. As if our love is better than God's, we rejoice over those we love, but God couldn't rejoice over me. But not only could, He does. The Bible says He sings over you. He delights in you. Is that something to celebrate? Is that something to begin your day lifting your heart from its discouragements by reminding yourself how God really thinks about you? Or that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all ever active on your behalf, unceasingly active on your behalf, perfecting you for the day when you will see Him. Or we celebrate the grace of knowing that all of the glories of God are what color our eternity. So how, how wonderful will our eternity be? The answer is, how wonderful is God? How full is the grace of God? How wondrous is God? That's, that's how wondrous our eternity will be. And so these, these are the truths that we should be immersing our hearts and minds in each day, both to restore our souls from weariness and to strengthen our arms and our feet to walk in righteousness. Gospel clarity and gospel joy will radically change your quality of life. If you are clear on what the gospel is, and you spend time rejoicing in what the gospel is and does, that will change your quality of life. It doesn't take all your problems away, but it significantly changes how you walk through them, how you bear them, what impact they have. The second piece of advice he has for those who are prepared and live well is, verse 9, to take joy in the relationships God has given you. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Uh, marriage is the deepest human relationship uh, that we have, but uh, here it, it could include other deep relationships. This, this, this invitation is not withheld from those who are not presently in, in a marriage relationship. Uh, 
So the relationships you have with those you dearly love, he says, take joy in them, you who are prepared and, and you know what life is meant to do. It's we're preparing ourselves to see God. You can now take joy in the relationships you have because God has given them to you. Souls last. And that's why he wants us to take joy, not just in the things we have or what we accomplish, but in the people he's given to us. Your job is not eternal. Your home, the things you possess, they are not eternal, but every soul you know is. So the investment we make in relationships, that's important. We're to slow down for that. We're to take joy in that. Not the joy in, okay, spouse, make me happy. Kids, I'm home. Make me happy. The, the joy we're taking is not the joy of those who know me, you need to now make me happy. It's what biblical joy is, which is when we see clearly God's role and our role, and we are living appropriately, worshipfully for God. We're understanding that he has given gift to us, that we live to serve him when our relationships are based on the right understanding of why God gave them, then we can take joy in them. We're not abusing them. We're entering into and enjoying what God has given. And in Christ, every deep relationship you have has supernatural qualities to it. For this simple reason, the Holy Spirit of God does literally forever live in you, ever working in you, always active whether you see it or not. And so the Spirit is working in you, and if you're in true relationships, loving and caring for people, the Spirit of God is going to be a part of that. It will not just be whether you're a good enough husband Wife, mother, father, friend, it will be God working through you in that if you have a heart for it. Every person that you have a relationship with desperately needs gospel encouragements. Every person you know is wearied and scarred and every believer you know at times wonders is God just completely turned off from me every believer you know gets forgetful every believer needs every person needs gospel encouragements and that, if that's what it means for you, above all things, to be a husband or wife, parent, friend, what blessing you are to the people in your life. When the heart of your relationship with them is what Christ is to you. And so our joy will be what we receive 
and the impact we have. We lose much delight in life when we minimize community. It's not just being even physically with people, though that's important. Now, we have these now. So, you know, I talk about watching a football game with my son, which means the TV's on and we're... You can do that for hours and have no engagement whatsoever and think we just did something together. And we didn't at all. We were just in the same room, almost unaware that each other was there. And so that it's more than just physical proximity. It's actual. It's, it, they used to call it conversation. <laughs> Listening. Old-fashioned words for it. The library probably has books on this, so we don't forget. But there is a third uh, advice that he gives those who are prepared to live well. Uh, we, we take joy, we celebrate in grace, we take joy in the relationships God has given, and we take joy in our labors. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Now, whatever our hand does, it obviously could refer to our job, what, the work that we do for the, the most of our day. But it, it's not just limited to your job. It, it's anything you are involved with your life. It, it could be how you serve in the community. It could be how you're involved serving your church, how you're in, engaged with other people. That what you do, he says, labor joyfully in what you do by, by doing your best in it. And we have to remember the context is always what is God fearing? Even if he doesn't have that phrase in the sentence, that is the orientation that the preacher has. That's the, the purpose. That's what he's directing us to. He's said it many times. We are to be those who fear God. If you fear God, it goes well with you last week. If you do not fear God, it does not go well with you. So if you want it to go well in your work, you fear God in it. You give your best. You show up as a person of integrity, as a person of graciousness. You're faithful. You're consistent. You're cheerful. You're helpful. What your capacities are, you do your best. If you're an employer, you'll take that person any day of the week. Can I have 10 more of those? How we show up has a great effect. One of the, uh, the pastors that I was reading about on the text says he was talking to his grandmother and she, she said to him, Dennis Rodman's my favorite basketball player. He's my favorite athlete. And he was, really? Why is Dennis Rodman your favorite? He smiles all the time. He must be a great guy. Now, she didn't know a single thing about Dennis Rodman or his behavior. What she knew is she noticed what it was his demeanor. And that stood out to her. How you show up, people notice. We can show up with the, in the American way, complaining about everything. That's kind of our common ground with people we don't know. Well, you complain about something because we know we all appreciate complaining. Or we can show up 
with actual interest, care, concern, and joyfulness of heart. Everyone who can observe you can be impacted by you. So those who are well-known who then do foolish things and people criticize and they say, I'm not a, a role model. Uh, well, yes, you are. You may be a lousy one and you may not care, but you are an example, period. You, you can't not be an example. You're in the world, people see you, you are an example of something. How wonderful we can be an example of. Now, you don't have much skill, you don't have a lot of ability, you don't think you know much. You can be an example of, I show up. And I have an encouraging heart. And I love God. And I just do my best. Tomorrow, we do it again. That is a wonderful example. God created you, your soul. He created what you are, what you're like. Everything but your sin, he created you to be in this world where you are in this time. Why did he do that? Partly so that you could have an impact for him in this place and time. That's something to talk to God about. Lord, help me to be the person you want in my place and time. Some of us have a, a big footprint in life. Billy Graham has a pretty big footprint in his life. Some of us, our footprint's pretty small. But it can all be one that points people to the Lord Jesus Christ. The living When they know they will die, they have hope. They are wise. And so let us live now in awareness that eternity is coming and that there is a God who reigns over it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for life. We we, we thank you for everything we have. We, we thank you for everything that's true because apart from you, there's literally nothing. We thank you that you made us to know you, to be with you. We thank you that you made a way for us to be with you and know you when we just pushed you aside to go our own way. We thank you that you did not shy away even from the cross, which was necessary for it. We thank you for your word before us, and we're asking for grace. Your, your intervention and touch in our hearts and minds to see what does it mean to be prepared for death and eternity? What does it mean to live well now? We need to see it. We need to understand it. We need help to stay at it. And for that, we need grace. And because of the cross, we come confidently asking for that grace. In Jesus' name, amen.